0: So, uh, hey, Ted. Hey, Richard. Uh, we are not Caitlin and Morgan. No, we're not. The people who are listening to us are going, what? Like that image of the lobster. You know the image of the lobster that you post on Twitter when you're like, what? No. there's It's a meme. Uh-huh. They're like that lobster meme right now because they're hearing me and you. Anyway, you know, Labor Day weekend's coming up. There's a lot going on. It's 100% week and we thought we'd take a break. Next week, they'll be back with at, at full force, but this week, we wanted to share something with the listeners of Quick to Listen we thought they'd enjoy, which is Caitlin talking about her calling on right. a show called The Calling. If the listeners of Quick to Listen haven't heard of The Calling, I wanted to briefly just sell it. Right. You should, because it's the other podcast. It's the other podcast Christianity Today does. No, it's the other podcast. What do you mean? <laughs> what are you trying to say? I mean, really, there's like two podcasts, and then there's the rest of the podcast world. Yes. So this is a, this is a pretty typical episode of The Calling, an interview with Caitlin. It was really good. And if you haven't heard it, you should check it out. If you like it, check out The Calling on iTunes, on Stitcher, all those podcast stores. Over Castro. Overcast drive. just plug, just click it like the MP3 link and play it in your browser. Yeah. Anyway, check it out. And if you like this interview, you mm-hmm. should totally listen to Caitlin's podcast called Quick to Listen. They're already doing that. Oh, <laughs> Ted, you should. Here's what you should do: go and write and rate and review Quick to Listen. In the meantime, if you want a valuable subscription to Christianity Today at a low, low price, ten dollars. That's low for a whole We're- year of issues. You should check out orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. Here she is.
1: It is the case that people in the Midwest are down to earth, generally easy to approach. Yeah. Um, suspicious of people who put on airs. Lack of pretension. Mm-hmm. These are all things I, I like about the Midwest. Plus, there are beautiful places in the Midwest. Plus, we have Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just that I've been here for so long. I just want to see other... I want to try to live in other parts of the country to see how I adapt.
0: Yeah. I can see that. <laughs> I don't want to adapt anymore.
1: And see like what other Pokemon are out there. Do you...
0: <laughs> I think there's the same kind of Pokemon as here.
1: You don't think there are...
0: Like Southern Pokemon? Yeah,
1: they're not like... Hey, species. I'm a Pokemon! <laughs> Gotta catch me! Pokemon.
0: Caitlin, you are the author of A Woman's Place. By the time this podcast comes out, it will have been out. Yeah. So you wrote about women mm-hmm. and work. Yeah. Maybe that has to do with this, the, your answer to this question. Maybe it doesn't. I'm actually really interested to know. You know this already. We ask all of our guests how you d- would define your calling. So, how would mm-hmm. you, Kaylin Beatty, define your calling?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I have a prepared answer for this because I've been meeting with a life coach.
0: That's imp- so is that like, okay, we're going to go into this. Yeah. Is that like one of the. Things that happens when you meet a life co- coach is they go, we're going to figure out what you're called to do.
1: It's not that direct or programmatic, but I, through the course of several sessions, we develop a life purpose statement, which is about as close, to, close a, to a... That's pretty close to calling, yeah. This is your calling. And it's not wrapped up in like, this is your specific job or job title. It's yeah. like in whatever area you're working, this is what your specific or unique contribution is. So my life purpose statement is... I am the docent.
0: Gonna need you to define that for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A docent is a... It's actually usually a volunteer at a museum who takes groups of people around and shows them all the interesting things in a museum and explains why it's important and gets them really excited about what's in a museum. Got it. So I am the docent who leads people in a way that... Educates, informs, inspires worship, and calls people to a deeper and better life. Cool. But in my day-to-day life, that is going to come across in my writing. Writing is the thing that I can't imagine not doing, whatever my job title is.
0: You consider yourself a writer first, an editor second?
1: In my heart of hearts, yes. In my day-to-day work, it's rare that I would spend much time at ct writing you know there's the occasional editorial article but most of the time i'm working on other people's words because
0: that's just typically how it goes to work at ct as an editor
1: yeah and it's very rare that you could do a full-time job just writing Mm -hmm. unless you're like ann voskamp yeah or stephen king
0: so but do you aspire to be ann voskamp
1: no and here's why i really enjoy belonging to an institution Mm. I enjoy belonging to an organization or a subculture that is clearly shaping the direction of a culture or a community. I don't. I have less trust in an individual being able to do that.
0: So for some people, working at institutions is maddening because mm-hmm. you you feel like you know the right thing to do because those you people feel like, are
1: selfish, right?
0: Um. Yeah. The selfish people don't like working at institutions or being parts of institutions. They want to go off and do their own thing.
1: Right, right.
0: What is it that you like about working at institutions?
1: Yeah, I think it's that I believe that institutions are where cultural change happens in the most direct and long-lasting way. So an institution lives beyond the lifespan of its founder and its original members. That's the amazing thing about the institution. and obviously there's a very strong Christian argument for institutions, right? Like God, when God was calling individuals to himself through the gospel in the early in early Christian communities their central life together rather than, these one-on-one individuals is what he was calling and creating. Yeah.
0: But do you struggle with it? Like, is it something you fit in? You're like, yeah, I like institutions. This is fun. Or do you find yourself, your your sort of selfish part of you? Because mm-hmm. if I'm honest, this has been my struggle. For me, I had created this thing called Christ and Pop Culture, mm-hmm. and then I moved into an institution called Christianity Today. One of those things was like my thing. Your baby, yeah. And it definitely wasn't to the level of an institution, right? So we could easily shift and change course as we needed mm-hmm. to.
1: Well, I would actually argue that it is an institution. I would argue that Christ and Pop Culture is an entity that extends beyond the individual who created it. That's interesting. There's a reason why you didn't call it richardclark.com. Um,
0: yeah, Alan is the main reason, my (laughs) (laughs) co-founder. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah.
1: Well, yes, I mean, I was an only child for the first four and a half years of my life. Right. And so I have a special snowflake syndrome where I do want to stand out in an organization as being important or essential or a leader or have a more visible role and that's partially why i've enjoyed when i was working on it day to day you know hermeneutics which was kind of this like sub creation within the institution of ct was my baby yeah and i enjoyed how closely it was aligned with who i am yes everything had like a little bit of caitlin imprint on it that was published
0: and then it was successful <laughs>
1: terrible no
0: it sounds great no i I don't think that sounds terrible at all. I think most people will resonate with that satisfaction that Mm -hmm. not only did you create something that flowed from like sort of who you are and what you're about, but also people resonated with it. So talk about what Hermeneutics was about.
1: Another lady editor and I started it in 2009. And at the time, Christianity Today was launching all these new blogs. That was the strategy at the time. Like, we need to expand what we're publishing online. We need to find all these niche audiences and niche conversations. And given that, at the time, Sarah Pulliam Bailey and I were two of three women editors on staff. And in my interview, I said, well, when I look through the CT, it feels like a men's magazine to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah which was kind of snotty,, uh-huh. but it was also true, yeah, and they acknowledged that, that was a that perception was in fact, yeah, accurate on some level. So hermeneutics was created as a way to basically, I mean, in its most essential basic form, just feature the writing of evangelical women and writing that fit within the tone and rubric of c t. It was a way of of acknowledging that on a lot of topics that are of core concern to Christians, women are going to come at the topics from a different vantage point or different perspective or different experience than men, and that we need to hear those experiences and voices. And also saying like, okay, if we're a publication for the church, the church is made up of both men and women. So if we're not addressing both in some way, we have a blind spot. So it kind of took off. I mean, not to toot my own horn. I mean, it was really the strength of the writers. And I think there was just a felt need. There was just this vacuum of people waiting for. I mean, one of the words that we use that can sound a little pejorative to other women's publications is like, we're thoughtful. You know, we're for like, we're for Christian women who don't like the other Christian women stuff out there. Yeah.
0: You said your calling was to be a docent. At what point did you realize that that was your calling?
1: So I think one of the earliest experiences that I had that, for example, made me realize I love writing and I love having people engage my ideas in my writing and getting feedback on it and having the sense that I've shaped how people think about the world is working on the student newspaper at Calvin College And Calvin is one of the rare Christian colleges that has a dance minor. So that's that flows from a reformed theology of like every human enterprise falls under the lordship of Christ. And dance is no less something that we can redeem and and use for the glory of God. So they have this dance off every they call it dance guild. I was in it once and danced to a Beastie Boys song. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh which one
1: something from their robot album hello nasty (laughs) even even hello nasty can be redeemed okay (laughs) anyway i wrote a piece about dance guild for the student newspaper as an editorial and i had all these friends or acquaintances come up to me and say i'm so glad someone finally said that or I'm so glad that you addressed my concerns about this. And it was this early experience of, I mean, it was an early experience of leadership, of saying something or reflecting something back to a community that I believed was edifying and that would shape the direction of the community. And so I later had experiences at CT writing editorials. Now, there was a time when our editorials weren't signed. But I knew that I had written them and other people in the building did and getting feedback like, oh, I'd never thought of it that way. Or thank you so much for saying that. Or I really needed to hear that is you don't as a writer, you don't write things for yourself. You write them with an audience in mind. You write you write because you have something to say to a reader with the intention of shaping the way they think about the world and the way they feel about the world.
0: Why did you want to shape things at CT?
1: I first encountered CT in college. My parents had a subscription. They actually became Christians when I was a teenager. So I didn't grow up in, you know, our our age peers will have stories about like I wasn't a- allowed to watch Pokemon <laughs> <laughs> or Captain Planet <laughs> because there were there was magic. In that, and where did their magical powers come from? Yeah. I didn't have that. Uh-huh. I was thoroughly shaped by stories of magical powers. But when I was a <laughs> college student, my parents, I would say that I didn't grow up with any exposure to the intellectual Christian Christian tradition. I grew up in a, you know, with strong worship experiences and kind of personal piety I knew all of that going into college, but college was my first experience of having faith and thinking and education integrated.
0: And you went into, you had a very specific college experience. You went to Calvin College. Yeah. What made you go to Calvin College?
1: I wanted to go to a Christian college and I wanted to stay in the Midwest. And it was, I really liked the campus. And they said something, I mean, you know, in one of those freshman orientation tours of the campus. They said. Yeah. They were like at Calvin, we believe that being a Christian is not so much about what you do as who you are. I was like, oh that sounds cool. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It really is when you choose a college it's all about who says the cool thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Who says the thing that resonates with you. Plus they had like better chicken fingers than Taylor. That helps. So sorry Taylor. Your chicken fingers are terrible. <laughs> oh,
0: There's someone responsible for the chicken fingers at Taylor. Yeah. And they're like, oh, they're the having Lord a bad day them. right now.
1: Right. <laughs> Surely they listen to this podcast. It's possible. So anyway, I wanted to go to Calvin because I wanted that faith and learning integration. I wanted to live on a dorm floor where... Other women and I could, like, pray together and and do life together, you know, do Christian life together. I had gone to public school up until college, so I'd never had that experience before. And also the aforementioned chicken fingers. So, and I had a wonderful experience at Calvin. Like, actually, it was probably the happiest time in my life.
0: Real? That's surprising to me, because I did not enjoy college because of all of the stuff that you just said. I had all those expectations.
1: And and they didn't, it didn't I thought happen. it'd basically
0: be like heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's regular people on earth. Like it's just yeah. people hanging out together.
1: Right, Being right. people,
0: which is mostly like jerks to each other. <laughs> you know? Where did you go? Uh, the Baptist College of Florida. It's a okay. great school, but like...
1: I actually knew people who went, friends who went to Calvin who didn't have...
0: They had experience. that heaven
1: on earth expectation and they didn't have a good experience. Yeah. So, yeah, but definitely college was... This set apart time mm. to think upon uh the world that God made for its own sake,
0: yeah, that's good.
1: you know i I loved writing papers,
0: yeah, <laughs> this is why you liked it more than I did. <laughs> I did not
1: and then, um, I came across an editorial that Christianity Today had published on Bono, and their take was a little grumpy. And a little snooty, but it was very well thought through and engaging. Yeah. I was like, okay, I need to pay attention to CT. I remember going home and reading CT and thinking, they're too politically conservative. <laughs> but I don't feel that way now. Maybe it's just because I, I like drank the Kool-Aid. And that brings us back to the question of the relationship between individual identity and institutional identity. Right.
0: They change each other. Right, and one changes with one more than the other. I think, right? You think so? Uh, it seems inevitable. that yeah. you are not. You are not going to be able to change an entire. You can It's like a Titanic versus a rowboat. Like you can <laughs> literally just do this. Like I am a you Titanic, move your though. arm once, and you've turned a rowboat. <laughs> you know, it's hard to turn. That is such
1: an interesting metaphor. Yeah, but when you're on the Titanic, you're like one of those people down in the. Bottom area. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> That's what it's technically called. The bottom area.
1: You're down in the steam room. You're in the steam room and you're like shoveling coal mm-hmm. to make the to make the boat keep going.
0: Just go. That's the whole point. But
1: you're not steering it.
0: Yeah. Not necessarily anyway. Yeah. Someone's steering it somewhere. Right. And you can go say, Hey, could you steer <laughs> it a little more to the right?
1: <laughs> or the left, as it were. <laughs>
0: It did at any point you reach a moment where you doubted uh your calling? Like you thought, I don't know, I don't know if I'm cut out for this whole docent thing.
1: Mm. Well, the first f- few years at CT, I felt very lost. I was not used to the expectations of deadlines. Um I felt very alone. I just, you know, being one of the younger editors, there was an age gap of like a ton of young editor- editors and then editors who'd been here for 25 years and were my dad's age. There weren't any women like senior editors, so I I didn't feel like I had a natural mentor to go to and say, what do you do about this or, you know, I need your advice on this or whatever.
0: What was the outcome of that? Like the t- the sort of tentative outcome did you consider uh moving on? Did you what what was the what were the stakes?
1: I don't know. I mean, I think what kept me engaged was that I actually cared about the end product.
0: So you're just plugging along. Like, you were just like, this is hard, but I'm here. I'm doing this. Yeah.
1: And I would say that is that is one of my, my strong points. Okay, yeah. That's one of my strengths is like a kind of grin and bear it, get it done approach to work. And sometimes that's unsustainable and exhausting. And I need to work more on like the integration of mind heart and will it's not just will you know it can't just be all grit there has to be passion or or a deep ultimate concern for what you're doing but in those early years it was just like get it done
0: did you find yourself able to sort of live out uh the thing you wanted to do in the early years or were you limited
1: so a turning point a turning point for me was definitely having my baby called hermeneutic and it was like, okay, I have this creation to tend and grow and raise, as it were. And I had a lot of agency in the direction of hermeneutics. And that was immensely rewarding. And and I had a sense that I was helping to shape the culture of CT. That that is you can do you can put up with a lot if you feel like you have that agency to make changes
0: what what so okay you haven't mentioned being a woman at all <laughs> that's weird caitlin it's not really weird only it's only reason I mean, it's I weird I do bring it up a lot <laughs> the only reason it's weird is because you just wrote a book about it
1: <laughs> and but you haven't mentioned that you're a man
0: i haven't written a book about being a man i don't ever intend to in fact
1: <laughs> this is the part of the interview that makes me nervous
0: yeah that's good so that's why you haven't brought it up why does it make you nervous
1: Because gender is such an important topic and it's a topic that incites a lot of very personal and strong reactions because it is so intimately tied up with who we are and how we experience and see the world. And I think because of certain divisions in the church around gender, when you have a leader wading into the topic, people are waiting on both sides to see like... Are you on our side? Are you on their side? What do we do with you? Are, you? are you healing divides? Are you creating further divides? And I think it's clear within the first several pages of my book that I am not intending to divide yeah. women. That's the last thing I want. That would be me failing to serve the church and live into being a docent. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, well, I think there's something about gender that is actually mysterious, And that's why we it's important and we keep coming back to it. And conversations about gender and faith keep changing over time. And it's why we have so much invested in it. It's actually very intimately tied up with our image bearing. So it's a core issue. You were you
0: were the first um, you were a first. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that that puts weight on you a little bit, right? Like Mm -hmm. being the first female managing editor of an institution. Right. Uh, in this case, Christianity today, what, what does that feel like? And I think like, here's what I imagine it must feel like. Okay. You have two sets of people who see you as a symbol. Mm -hmm. Uh, one set of the people is people who see you as a symbol, something bad. Right. And another set of people who see you as a symbol of something good Mm-hmm. And both of those are expectations mm-hmm. that essentially are impossible to address or live up to. Right. But th- how do you cope with that? You must have come up with a way to cope with people who expect you to be perfectly, what, feminist or however you want to put it? hmm And then to also cope for with people who think you're liberal or whatever.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I honestly, this is going to sound weird I don't think of myself as a woman first, even though I wrote a book about being a woman and being a working woman and addressing other women. I, I just think of myself as Caitlin and that of course is inherently tied to being a woman, but the work that I do at CT is foremost about being an editor and a writer. And my responsibility is to do those things well. And Actually, I would say the people who look to me to be like, to bring, to usher in gender equality in the church are not being fair in a similar way as to the people who are concerned about women in leadership or some kind of spiritual leadership. It's actually a a dehumanizing way to treat a person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense
0: because I literally just called you a symbol.
1: It foists upon that person... An ideology or or a, a worldview that no one person can possibly inhabit, and i I actually think it's bad for our souls if we try to, um because we don't we don't live as perfectly coherent ideologies, not even as Christians, right? There are always parts of our lives and parts of ourselves that are not yet under the Lordship of Christ um so I don't I don't think of myself as a woman editor, even though I write about it a lot. <laughs> but in my day to day work, book. I'm like I'm just Caitlin. I'm yeah. just I'm just that dude in the corner. Not really, not the dude part person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, as as you so you wrote uh an editorial a while back that. I really liked an apology to the local oh, church. Yeah, yeah. Can you summarize summarize that for for our listeners and for me just to refresh my memory?
1: <laughs> sure. So at that time, a, a prominent Christian writer had acknowledged on his own website that he had stopped going to church, and he, according to him and his account, several other Christian leaders would tell you, you know, the the reader that they don't belong to. A local church. And that created a whole stir, obviously, about the role of the local church in in the Christian's life and in our sanctification. I acknowledged that in the editorial, and I wrote it as like a letter to the church, that even though, unlike this writer, I would say every, you know, a, a core essential aspect of being a Christian is to belong to the local church and to pour to pour into it i treated my local church in a the same consumerist my needs first way that this writer was doing so i was looking to the church primarily in terms of what it could give me as an experience or even what it could give me in terms of an experience of community Like, do I like these people? (laughs) Do I like the people that I worship with? Do I resonate with the style, the preaching style of the pastor? How does all of this accord with my own preferences? I talked about, and this is a true story, a woman at my former church who attributed many events in the world as the work of angels and would also talk a lot about the presence of deceased pets in our lives and I would often think I don't want to worship with people who have crazy ideas like this Uh but there was something about worshiping alongside that crazy ant week in and week out that transcended my own preferences and that actually spurs all of us on to preparing for heaven preparing for the new kingdom there are going to be people there that we wouldn't choose to affiliate with in our time on earth
0: your work your professional life is very much like leading uh the church writ large certainly like it's you're you play a role in leading the church not to overstate it but we lead the church a a role you play a role in leading the church and certainly local churches are a part of that how what's what is your posture in a local church congregation how do you switch into Mm. or do you switch into are you do you play Mm -hmm. a leadership role at your church Mm -hmm. and if not why not and Mm -hmm. what is that like
1: so my answer is like is horribly cliched but so there's something about my work during the week that's very public and very visible and that requires me to be on even when I'm not at work, like I wear this identity hat throughout the week. I am the managing editor of CT on the weekend. And especially on Sunday morning, I want to take that hat off and put on the hat of Jesus follower, you know, a mere Christian. And so what that actually means is that I don't teach Sunday school very often. Um, I don't, I don't aspire to a leadership role in the local church, even though I have fellowship with other Christians there. And that's, I actually think that might be good for my spirit to not be a professional Christian every day of the week. There is something, and I think this is actually, even though I ultimately disagree with him, I think this is what that writer was getting at several years ago about the weird dynamic that can happen or the writer that your column
0: is responding to yeah yeah
1: that can happen when your work your day-to-day work and your faith are so tied up with one another and i don't know how to exactly articulate it but in a way i think that the accountant who isn't having to think about what jesus thinks about multiplying these two numbers may have a simpler and clearer vision of what it means to follow Jesus in that context than than we do.
0: Totally. Yeah, I can relate to that.
1: So I'm going to become an accountant.
0: I thought about Subway sandwich maker, artist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely artist.
0: That's what they call them that. But then even that, I don't want to call it an artist because that implies a subjectivity and I just don't have to think about it. I just want to make the sandwich.
1: There have been so many times when I have gone through the drive-through at Starbucks and thought, oh, how I just long for a simple, straightforward, you have one job, mm-hmm. and it's to make the latte. Definitely. There's no having to necessarily integrate it with your worldview. <laughs> right. No yeah. one's standing there like waiting, how is she going to make the latte as a woman leader?
0: Uh, in what ways has the work you do and living out this calling changed you over time?
1: So I start the book in a pretty vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. And I did that because I had a writer once say to me, go vulnerable or go home. I like that. Yeah. And when I was 27, I had been an editor at CT for five years and it was growing in my responsibilities. And I, had just started working on the This Is Our City project with Andy Crouch and was traveling for that and really enjoying it. And I was also engaged to be married. And at the time, and a lot of this was, I think, subconscious, but I assumed that once I got married, I would either stop working or work would certainly take a back seat. not only in terms of my time and energy investment, but also in terms of my identity. And I'm not married now. Just to repeat, I'm not married now. I did not end up getting married to this person that I was engaged to. And the day that we decided to end things and not to get married was the same day that I was offered the position of managing editor at CT. So over breakfast you know, my supervisor was like, Hey, would you ever be interested in taking on this position? I had no idea that it was going to be open anytime soon. right? And it, in fact, had said, like, what would I want to do at CT? Oh, if I were in charge of the magazine, you know, this is mm-hmm. what I would do. Mm-hmm. And then over lunch, my fiance at the time and I ended things. And naturally, I've thought a lot about the the meaning of that day in my life. And I think just, you know, very simply, I experienced it to be God's providential care and provision and and also cemented that my writing and leadership and docenting isn't something that I would put on the shelf of my identity if I were to get married and have children, that it would still be true about me, even though it may be expressed in different realms or arenas and i wouldn't necessarily be be here what i'm doing right now today it's still part of what god has created me to be in the world
0: can i ask you to speculate because i think this would be beneficial for some listeners okay if you were to get married and have kids what would your calling living out your calling possibly look like in that scenario
1: It's really hard to say because you you think that you have an answer to that based on who you are now, but naturally you change marriage to this hypothetical person Mm -hmm. (laughs) and creating new people. These are some of the most formative human experiences that you can have and they would change me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I don't know. I mean, I want to say where I am now that in fact I would continue to work if not directly after having a child then soon after and that i would i would that, that it would be important to pursue a dual call at the same time but i also totally understand why women choose to be in the home for those first 5 years of life or however long that they think they they want to be there i mean my mom even though my my dad was traveled a lot for his Work in the military. Um, she was at home with me and my brother until I was eight, and and that was really important to her, and that was a value of hers. And certainly, that didn't mean that she never went back to work, and it didn't mean that her. She's a librarian, so her love of books and her love of learning and reading that never went away. It was still a core part of who she is. It was just expressed differently in that time.
0: What would you say is the deepest fear that you have when it comes to living out your calling?
1: How much time do you have? My deepest fear of living out my calling is that by doing so, I would be foreclosing on other options, Hmm. on other good options. Like what? That I would, I mean, to get even more specific, Mm -hmm. which, as I said earlier, go vulnerable or go home. So here we go. Please. That there wouldn't be many Christian men who would be excited to partner with me in that
0: why do you why is that a fear
1: because i haven't met any christian (laughs) (laughs) men. do you feel
0: like there's a cultural thing that that causes is that like an experience you've had is like men have certain expectations and you're not quote unquote scare quotes living up to them or you're unable to
1: i mean surely surely you and our listeners have heard of like the intimidating woman syndrome right
0: Yes. No, yeah, that sounds familiar. Like, I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners have.
1: 3 years ago, after the broken engagement, my parents and I were my parents were visiting me here and we had come back from dinner and my dad was doing a very love it. My dad's like my favorite person in the world besides Jesus. And he was asking me about my like dating life. And it wasn't at all pressure-y or trying to fix a problem he was just truly curious and he said well first he said i think you're beautiful which that really matters for women to hear from their dads okay i know that sounds totally cheesy
0: it sounds sexist to some
1: i don't know No? And i didn't because i know my dad and i know his heart i didn't yeah. receive it as that
0: so you th- that was super encouraging not even complicated it was, it was just encouraging yeah
1: it was just really sweet okay and then he said honestly i i think I don't know. I don't know why you're single. And by him saying that, he was saying you shouldn't be single. It's weird. It's yeah. weird that you're single. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, I honestly think that, have you ever wondered if some men are intimidated by you? And what I received that as was not. Therefore, could you kind of play down the leadership thing? And could you kind of play down the work stuff? Because it's really intense. Yeah. And could you just be a certain way so that men wouldn't find you intimidating? What I heard it as was, what in the world is going on with, with men in our generation yeah. that your the strength of your call or your character would be seen as problematic rather than exciting and attractive.
0: But you must have considered dialing it down. That has to have been something you've thought about.
1: I don't know that I have.
0: Really? You never thought about
1: it? What, what would dialing it down look like?
0: Oh, that's a great question.
1: You know, because again, what...
0: You probably had a moment where you said, I mean, I guess I could just, like, you know, not be myself, but that's impossible.
1: Right. I mean, what is the other option for... If the option is don't be yourself, I think I know what my choice is going to be, right? And I know that sounds... Of course, you could talk about how you prioritize your time and being open to new people. And for a lot of women of my generation, is is it that important that... He has the same education level as me, or is going to be able to afford a mortgage right off the bat. Like, there are certain considerations that we would say, actually, that's not that important when you're choosing a life partner. Or, like, maybe you're putting too much. I feel so embarrassed that we're talking about this. But... <laughs> you want to move on? But we it's interesting, right? It is
0: interesting. Okay. And I think people struggle with it. So, that's why I'm talking about it. I think people struggle with a similar dilemma. Whether it's men who feel like they should be more manly and right. in, in control, which right. is something I've struggled Have with. Have their
1: stuff together. Yeah.
0: Or yeah. or women who feel like they're too intimidating.
1: Yeah. And, and there's honestly some reassurance in knowing that we are in this cultural moment that is truly unprecedented in terms of women's education, women's advancement in the workplace. Meanwhile, we we know about men having, not all men, of course, but Some men, hashtag not all men, hashtag not all men, but a lot of men seeming to have trouble securing this, what we've considered kind of core signals of adulthood. And so we have this imbalance among the sexes. And then we also have an imbalance in numbers in the church. Like there are just more women than men in the local church. So we're in this really strange moment.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask what role the local church plays in this dilemma. Uh, if you would call a dilemma this you seem to want to eventually be married,
1: yeah, definitely so
0: what role <laughs> uh,
1: uh, uh, but but I'm not like I mean I have lots of other things going on and, like it's not like I'm like desperate I mean it's it would come might be nice someday. it's totally fun
0: it's totally fun okay, so in the local church what are your expectations and does it live up to that and mm. what what role has the local church ultimately played in this
1: mm-hmm. yeah I mean i I think that I think most Christians would agree that meeting a spouse in the context of the local churches is in some ways preferable to trying the online dating scene and it's not that, you know, people meet each other online all the time and it works, but there's something about coming from a similar spiritual context that really helps and part of what we agree to in the church is to support each other's marriages. And so that is a really fruitful context for Dating. It's also a place where you're you understand it's not just the two of you as individuals trying this out, but you're held accountable in this bigger. You you invite people to speak into your lives as a dating couple. I think all of that is ex- extremely healthy. I do wonder if churches need to grapple with this these imbalances that we've been talking about in terms of maturity and then just sheer numbers between single men and single women and and help men adjust their expectations maybe and ask is it a deal breaker that she has if, that she's going to grad school why would that be a deal breaker and I, I in some ways i'm speaking hypothetically or i i don't have a specific church or person in mind sure. but some of the things that we label intimidating in women Is there a reframing that could happen where those things are actually seen as valuable and signs of maturity and purpose in a woman's life?
0: Uh, You are also the youngest managing editor? Yeah. At Christianity Today? More identity things, right? Yeah. More like symbol things. Right. Uh, So because that is the case, I'm going to ask your age.
1: Now. 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 Yeah. What's your age? 31.
0: So you're 31. So you just crossed over into 30.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what a relief. Oh, my God. Now you're like,
0: seriously, really, for real an adult. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So with that context, if you could get into a time machine and go back in time and come out of that time machine Mm. and say, hello, Caitlin, from the past, Mm -hmm. what would you tell her?
1: I think I would go back to age 22. Which is a horrible age, by the way. Yeah, it is. But I would go back to age... You were
0: were in college at this time?
1: I just left college. Okay. I graduated college. And I think I would say you will experience profound success in the next 10 years. And you will experience profound loss in the next 10 years. And both of these things will shape fundamentally who you are. But they're not the most important thing. And all shall be well. And I don't say that in a flippant way. I mean it's a it's a Julian of Norwich quote, so you can't really pull it out flippantly, but all yeah. all shall be well. All shall be solved. You know, You the, would encourage
0: her so that she might endure. Yeah. Did you struggle to endure to a point where you feel it like it changed things?
1: Going through the broken engagement felt well, it was it was it was trauma in some sense. Yeah. And I feared that my very self was being taken away yeah, or denied sure, in that experience. And that is not true. And it's also not true that the success and the accomplishments tell me the most fundamental thing. They don't give me myself any more than the broken engagement took myself away. Yeah, yeah it's the shift from doing to being. And that is... What do you mean by that? The central call of your life yeah. is to be an image bearer of God and to receive his word to you, mm-hmm. regardless of what happens or regardless of what you accomplish. But we're in a doing culture, maybe especially yeah. in ministry culture. It, it really is about numbers and accomplishment. And what are you doing for the Lord?
0: Have you seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Oh, yeah. So there's the... Scene early in the season where he goes to his priest. Yeah. The worst priest <laughs> yeah. on earth.
1: Because I think he's smoking marijuana <laughs> when he visits. I
0: don't know if I've gotten that far. But uh, <laughs> he literally is like, it's not who you are that matters. It's not what you think that matters. It's what you do. <laughs> and I'm like, that is
1: terrifying. That's like the opposite thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Of what Jesus says, I think.
1: Yeah. And so the doing, but the doing thing. I mean, I love, I can't go through a day without feeling that I have accomplished something very tangible Mm. on my to-do list.
0: That drives you crazy to end a day and feeling like you haven't accomplished something.
1: Like vacations are very hard for me. (laughs) Unless it's a vacation where it's like, okay, we're going to go see this historical monument and then Uh we're going to go to visit this museum and then we're going to go to the beach and we're going to cross those things off our list. Yeah. I sound like I need counseling as I say it out loud. Well, that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so I am, I am a an accomplishment oriented person. So that has spiritual ramifications. You know, like God is is at the end of the day. I mean, all the things that I'm doing, ultimately for Him, are good. Mm-hmm. But like, there's even something deeper that He's He's primarily concerned with.